Americans spend more on lottery tickets, and this is pre-COVID, than all concert tickets, movie tickets, sporting event tickets, video games, and books combined. Uh, as of 2018, it's an $85 billion industry in terms of ticket sales. New York sells over $10 billion a year. And of that, uh, New York basically makes a contribution of $3 billion to New York State education. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay Ventures. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. On today's show, I chat with Peter Sullivan, the founder and CEO of Jackpocket. Jackpocket is digitizing the real lottery, allowing everyone to play the lottery from their smartphone. Now, Pete shares his epic entrepreneurial journey, and I think it's going to be one that becomes startup folklore one day. He persevered through an extremely long development cycle as he had to cut through a lot of red tape, putting himself in massive debt and frankly putting everything on the line, only to emerge with a company that is going to be a unicorn. Now, I'm an investor in Jackpocket, and I've had the opportunity to watch his journey firsthand. I think this is going to be one for the ages. For context, the lottery industry is absolutely gigantic, and states heavily rely on the revenue generated by lottery ticket sales, so it's super important. To give you a sense, 30 to 40% of every lottery ticket sale goes towards state programs, such as education, job creation, veteran care, and outdoor recreation preservation. So it's very, very important. As you might suspect, this means that for an entrepreneur like Pete, there's a ton of government red tape that he had to cut through, which created both an extreme challenge in building the business, but also an incredible, incredible competitive barrier. Pete shares mind-blowing stats about the lottery, teaches us how to think about partnering with governments, and details his crazy entrepreneurial journey. He covers so much more. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Spoke. Spoke is a full-service outsourcing firm providing high-quality, low-cost solutions for all types of operational and back-office functions, including customer service, data science, HR, and supply chain management. They help companies scale their operations while keeping down their costs. If you're interested in learning more, visit GoSpoke.co. Welcome, Pete. Thanks for being here today. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. It's been a while since we had a uh... A moment to chat, so I'm super excited. It'll be great to catch up. Uh, yeah. Before we jump in, I wanted to actually start by introducing you. I find that uh, when I do the intros, I get to say all the nice things about people they might not brag about themselves uh, when they're asked to do it. So let, let, if you don't mind, I'll start off. Cool. Uh, Pete Sullivan, Peter Sullivan, is the co-founder and CEO of Jackpocket, a mobile app that allows you to play the real lottery digitally. He'll articulate it better than, than, than I will in a few minutes. Interplay helped incubate this company, and it's becoming very, very successful. We're really excited about being involved. Peter is a unique founder. I think you're going to see that as we start talking. He's a rare combination of having natural product and sales skills. Those two things don't always go together. He's also definitely one of the scrappiest entrepreneurs I've ever known or worked with. And I think his journey through Jackpocket is going to be one for the history books. So I'm looking forward to diving in today and helping to share that story. I think it's going to inspire a lot of entrepreneurs listening. So with that, Pete, let's jump in, man. Let's uh, do, do it. I'm st- excited. Want to start with just an overview of what Jackpocket is? Yeah. So I think you kind of hit it on the head. Jackpocket is the first and only officially licensed app uh, in the United States that allows uh, 
customers to order and play lottery games that they know and love that are official from the state lotteries. So obviously everyone knows the Mega Millions and Powerball, but here in New York, we have the New York Lottery, the Big Three, the Big Four. So we support all those um, games and allow people to play from the comfort of their home or anywhere within the state. And uh, we do all the compliance and heavy lifting. As you know, it's a heavy regulated industry. So um, we've worked really hard with both the lotteries, the regulators to ensure that uh, we can provide the service to customers that want it. So how many states is this live in now? We're currently live in 10 states, but uh, this quarter we hope to launch a few more. And uh, by the end of the year, uh, we're projecting to be, you know, 15 states or above. Um, But, you know, we're going after some really big states. So we hope with the next few states, we'll be able to say that we're addressing 50% of the adult population in the U.S. market. That's fantastic. And, uh, you know, we had uh, Ryan Smith from LeafLink on talking about the cannabis industry a little while ago. And it seems like there's a little bit of a domino effect. States get nervous to be first, and then other people look at the other states, and then they start to topple over. Is that picking up momentum here? Are there, you know, as you get 10 states in, is it easy to get the next 10? For sure. It's uh, the, the joke inside the lottery industry was that everyone wants to be third. No one wants to be first. Second's even scary, but third, they'll be okay with. And it's funny, out of those 10 states that were live, I think we did six states last year. And then including New York this January. And so the dominoes have started, you know, toppling over. Inbound request is really interesting right now. I think we've shown that we can work with some really big states and show incremental revenue. But um, I think what people forget about is how long it took to set up those dominoes, right? And so, you know, we're eight years into this. I always say, I always Mm -hmm. joke, we're halfway to becoming an overnight success. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, now that everyone is seeing some major traction and growth, um, everyone thinks it just happened. But, you know, it's taken a long time to get there. And, you know, most of that story. Yeah, blood, sweat and tears. I actually want to recap a little bit of that story today. So how many people are using it? Do you mind sharing that? Some sort of usage stats to give people a sense of the scale of this? Because I think it's a pretty big monster at this point. Well, in terms of scale, I can say this. We launched New York in the month of January. And in terms of Mega Million and Powerball sales, we were surpassing 7% of all the sales uh, of those games on particular drugs were being sold through the app. Um, in January Does that alone, make you the biggest distributor? Yeah. The biggest retailer by, of these? Yeah, we're the biggest. In every state that we operate, we are by far the biggest retailer in every jurisdiction we're live in today. And imagine, how has COVID impacted this? I'd imagine this is a counter-COVID business where everyone's stuck well, so, at home, not going to the you know, places where they would normally buy their lottery ticket. So it's interesting in, in two ways. Um, you know, in 2020, every entrepreneur was told to have a COVID slide in their deck. Um, we obviously are convenience play, right? So it's easy if you don't have to go out to be able to order your tickets. There were a lot of industries that boomed because essentially the way that you could do something previously was totally, you know, not available. However, you know, places where you could buy lottery tickets were all deemed essential businesses. So though they're, you know, pharmacies, grocery stores, mm. convenience stores. Um, so typically people still had access, yet they weren't, you know, there were times when people were told not to leave their houses. So obviously we saw an increase 
But I think the other side of the coin that people didn't really understand was that states rely on the revenue that's being generated from from lottery tickets. And about 30, to some states up to 40% of every lottery ticket sold is going to a cause, um, a beneficiary within that state. And that could be state education. In Oregon, it's literally called job creation. Um, in you know some other states, it's veteran care. In states like Colorado, it's awesome. It's actually outdoor recreation and uh, preservation. And you know what we're seeing are budgets being dramatically affected this year. And so these state governments are looking for ways to increase revenue without having to increase taxes. So there's been a demand. And there's also been most of the lottery um, departments, we're seeing it widespread across the country, seeing their marketing budgets cut. So where they used to be able to do TV spend um, or mm. maybe those billboards, they're, they're really dwindling down on what they can do. And, and that's where we come in as well. So that's driven more demand for your solution, I'd imagine. Ton of demand from both the state side and obviously consumers. Like, you know, if you can play without having to leave your house, you're going to play um, without leaving your house. So COVID definitely helped, but it wasn't this, this moment where like, you know, all of a sudden, if you take away COVID, the business is dead. It's actually, it's shown um, that convenience is king and that states have to, you know, think about how they can provide more distribution to more people. But, um, you know, I think the key takeaway here is that we can help generate more uh, revenue for states. And that's that's due to the fact that it's incremental revenue. You have people that are playing more that were traditional players, but we're also getting new tech savvy, younger players that traditionally didn't play. So it's fascinating because I think most people aren't aware how important lotteries are to the functioning and the financial livelihood of the states. Right. And it sounds like, you know, these states, we, we all hear the narrative that they're cash strapped and they're in financial trouble. And to, to knock out one of the legs of, how, of revenue other than taxes is probably super tough. How, I, I, know, I know the answer to this next question, a little bit leading, but I think it's fascinating. I've always been shocked by how big the lottery industry is when yeah. compared to other industries. Would you share that for the folks listening? Yeah. So you know, to all the entrepreneurs out there too, it's funny. If you look at our series seed deck all the way to our recent series seed deck, we always start with one slide, which shows a TAM, right? The total addressable market. And the backstory, by the way, is that my dad was an everyday lottery player that we joked about. He was a guy um, that worked at the MTA. I was born in Brooklyn. He moved us out to Jersey. And we joked because he became an everyday New York player and an everyday New Jersey player. And I only had this really narrow viewpoint of my dad's a lottery player, but maybe it's not as widespread. Well, it turns out it is. So, so the answer to your question is Americans spend more on lottery tickets and this is pre-COVID, then all concert tickets, movie tickets, sporting event tickets, video games, and books combined. Uh, as wow. of 2018, it's an $85 billion industry in terms of ticket sales. New York sells over $10 billion a year. And of that, uh, New York basically makes a contribution of $3 billion to New York State education. And that's critical right now. Um, education is getting them beating, and they need more revenue. And so, you know, people. I don't think they think about it, you know, when they buy a lottery ticket as a as a charity position, but really they are kind of giving back to their local community. So it's interesting because, you know, look, the internet and mob- mobile's been around in kind of a meaningful way since the the last decade. Yeah, I guess now it's a tw- it's 21, I guess 2 decades ago. It's crazy. Uh, and it's all it's shocking that lottery hasn't gone mobile 
a long time ago. And you're kind of bringing that to America and maybe beyond. Well, well, there's a few reasons for that. So if you think about lottery, it's one of these archaic industries that is government-led, right? And so um, some, when we were getting into this, we saw one state, Illinois, was the first state to attempt to do online. The problem is if you look at it, even through the last eight years, they're still only doing two to 3% of all the sales online. And that's due to the fact there's several reasons for that. One is they have to create a siloed app for that state. Two, the idea of build it and they will come. Um, As you know, you need to be doing marketing, a lot of digital marketing, which means a lot of spend from the state. Three, to create a compelling digital product, you need to have amazing engineers, designers, UI, UX, um, ex, you know, designers, uh, people that understand bleeding edge technology because everyone's trying to get this millennial, you know, younger tech savvy demo. But if you pick up an app within the first 20 seconds, if you don't like the way it feels or it doesn't feel up to date, um, people drop it. And so the state lotteries, and it's not a fault of their own, but it's due to the fact that they're, they're restricted in, you know, the amount of capital they can deploy for human capital and you know who they can hire, it's hard for them to build a complete tech team um, within the state bureaucracy program, right? And then on top of that, what Jackpocket's able to do is we're able to work with a national brand. We've done a, a global partnership with Circle K. Um, we've worked with a bunch of national partners. We're going to roll out a whole bunch more. And also, every time we build a new feature or a new part of the product, a new enhancement for the user. Um, we're able to get kind of economies of scale in the sense of we deploy it across all the state channels, right? So that tweak, that fix, that, you know, we've done an A-B test and we decided to change something for onboarding, it's going to affect every single state, whereas these other states have to create siloed products. Now, there's another big issue is that a lot of states through legislation or regulation are restricted from doing it. So California is a great example. Where everyone thinks Silicon Valley is the number one place for technology, right? And then you have California, a huge state, not that big in terms of um, per capita spend on lottery. And this due to the fact that it actually was a lottery that was established later, established in 1985, I believe. And when they established the lottery, they introduced a rule that says you cannot have any distribution channel that wasn't around when this lottery was created. So that inhibits the lottery from introducing internet channels. And we see that mm. a lot. And so the only way they could do that is going through legislation to make that change. And then in the case of California, they tried to do that. Then you're going to have the tribes, the card rooms. A lot of um, people start coming into that picture and want to you know, manipulate Sounds legislation. Sounds like it's pretty political. Very fast. Very fast. So... Mm. That's also been difficult for states is to get sometimes just the political support to be able to do so in a single state. And by the way, that's where we come in really nicely. And, you know, rather than retailers being able to say, hey, you've created a product that's we've been your, you know, your bread and butter for so long. We, we've, we've actually created all these sales for you. Now you're going to create a program that's going to take away. Instead, if lotteries start to lean in on third party apps, they can say, hey, listen, it's a free market system and if you retailers want to go and and make sure that you create a highly compliant um, application through a highly regulated market go ahead and do so and so that allows them to take the onus off themselves as well so you know look we we hear a lot about 
the companies that are generally disrupting the deeper rooted fabric of the system. We hear about Uber and the taxi commissions. We hear about Airbnb and conflict with hotels. You're changing and disrupting something I think we're generally better for everybody uh, by bringing the lottery to more folks. But it's, it's one of the companies that I've been involved with where I've seen there's more regulatory involvement. Typically when entrepreneurs show up, they hire a team, they raise money, and they launch something. It's a different game because your partner is the government. What have you learned for other entrepreneurs who are waking up right now thinking, all right, we've got an idea, but man, there's a lot of friction. There's a lot of red tape because it's a government-regulated or government-operated business. Yeah. What, 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 do you, what do you tell them? How do they, I mean, you had, you had to learn this playbook. What's the playbook for people to kind of get from zero to being yep. in market and being successful like you have been? So the first rule is don't use that word disruptive because what you're trying to do is, is not disrupt them. What you're trying to do is teach, right? You're trying to showcase. You're trying to um, educate uh, lawmakers, regulators, existing systems that there is an alternative and there's a solution that you found. Mm. And what we learned was to do things right, there were no shortcuts. And that's, that's tough as an entrepreneur. But the number one thing is persistence, you know, through this all. It's the number one trait of any entrepreneur, I think, is the idea of persistence. And what our approach was, was twofold. We needed to approach the lotteries and let them know who we were and that we wanted to be a good player in the space and that we wanted to be there for the long run and establish ourselves. At the same time, we needed, just like you need to show an investor some traction, we needed to show some traction. And so we, we needed to find an in, innovative way that was legal. So I think that's super important is doing things that are legal. Um, yeah. but, but that could actually show some traction. And so what we did was we created a solution where Jackpocket was the intermediate party and essentially a digital courier for a consumer. So we went to the state lottery. We answered an RFI for the state lottery and we, we didn't hear anything back. RFI said, is oh, a request for information, right? Exactly. It's yeah. yeah, it's before RFP. Usually there's an RFI where a government agency is collecting information about a problem that they're looking to solve. And then the RFP is actually when you're actually putting in a bid as a contractor. But we knew we didn't want to be that white label solution. We actually thought there was a better structure that was going to mimic kind of how casinos are where you know, the state gives out casino licenses that generate some type of revenue potentially for the state. And there can be, you know, third party private companies that can apply for that. And that's the framework that we were looking for. But with New York, when when we didn't hear anything back, we said, well, you know, there are retailers that are selling tickets right now. And I can text my friend to go pick me up a ticket. And that's totally legal. So what if we actually scale that concept? And uh, it's almost like, uh, the founder of Zappos, when you know he didn't have an online uh, or inventory store, he would actually the story that I've heard at least is he would go around to shoe stores and take pictures and then post them online, and then people would buy them and he'd buy them from the store. And our approach was the same: could we ensuring that we had age verification and geo verification, which were the necessary um, compliance requirements, along with some others? But could we actually showcase that you know through this third party we can actually get people playing the lottery? And so. Um, we actually went out and purchased a retailer out in Queens 
um, to be able to have full oversight of that retailer. Because at first we were actually purchasing tickets from the corner of a WeWork down in 175 Barrick Street. And we got so close to that retailer that you know we still have a, a great relationship today. But as we started to scale, and then we could go back to the lottery and say, hey, look, we have demand for this. People want to do it. So I think you need to make a you know, with data showcase that this is possible and that there's traction and there's interest. Um, and then you don't want to swim upstream. We learned that too. You know, these these people are going to be your partners. And it's a little bit different when you look at Airbnb and you look at uh, Uber. When they fought, when they won, they didn't have to then talk to those hotel chains every day, right? If we were going to fight right. the lottery in any sense, then the next day we'd be starting that relationship off on a bad foot. Right. Uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so yeah, there's an interesting parallel here. We just had John Stein on, uh, one of the founders of Betterment. He was CEO of the company for more than a dozen years. And one of his big takeaways and lessons, which is funny, it seems so trite and trivial probably to normal business people, but to entrepreneurs it's significant. It's not you know, going, cutting corners when you're operating in a heavily regulated or compliant space. It's doing it right, everything buttoned up, I's dotted, T's crossed, I know you've done that. Betterment did that. Uh, and I think that's an investment that a lot of entrepreneurs are kind of told more or less not to make uh, because you just want to candidly fuck it, ship it, get in market, and start yeah. doing business. Yeah. But uh, I think in these spaces where the government is super involved, there's a different strategy here. And I, I think well, that's a big insight for folks. Well, the strategy is when regulation is really hairy and difficult and hard, to be compliant with. If you're able to do so, and you're actually, you know, when we when we provided some input, and we still do to this day on, on how regulations could be written or best practices that we're seeing or different cert- certifications and compliance and banking and all this stuff. I mean, you go from the way that we hold player funds to the way we do transactions and the way we randomize numbers. I mean, everything has to be audited by third parties takes a long mm-hmm. time, takes an initial investment, but that also builds a barrier to entry. And that becomes your moat is actually doing things right. the right way. And now there is, there's a difficulty there too, because when you're so small, it's hard to run these processes. So it was, it was really interesting when we were going through the regulatory process in some of the, the big states like New York and New Jersey, there were things that we were suggesting that ended up um, you know, being part of the regulations. And, and you know, there's an input period where you can have public comments on the regulations that we knew we hadn't built yet, but we could build. And, and we were on that path to building and would also be, at the end of the day, it's, it all has to go back to consumers. Are you protecting consumers? Mm-hmm. But we also felt, hey, listen, if you want to be a great company and you want to show that you have controls on this because this actually matters to consumers, like then... And it's tedious and tough and hard. Well, anyone that else that wants to enter space is going to have to do it too. So let them figure it out. And we took that right. approach. And that's enabled us to uh, have a major first mover advantage in these markets. And then the other part of that is then you can talk to the establishment and, sh- and, and with pride say, we hold our heads high because we care right. about compliance and we care about crossing the T's and dotting the I's. And it's, we're not going to, you can trust us. We're not going to ship something that's not compliant. 
Pete, I want to rewind a little bit and kind of go chronologically through your journey because I think it's fascinating. And I think if we had you on the show and didn't share this with the world, it would be a mistake. Yeah. I, I think it's one of the more aggressive, incredible journeys that I think entrepreneur, you know, I feel like it's, it's almost the stereotype of what people imagine it's really like, but most people it's not this hard for and not this impressive. So we met during your prior venture. Would you start by just giving kind of a one-liner on what the company was and you know, yeah, yeah, what you learned about that, what you learned from that? Yeah. So I was a college rep and I, I found uh, that the country of Sweden was giving away f- uh, free education for master's programs if you qualified. Um, and I, I found this out while traveling around Europe and I applied, I was living in San Francisco. I applied, I got in and um First day of business school, met the person that would become my founder. Started a company in 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 Sweden that was around social travel. Um, ended up getting venture capital here in the U.S., which was really tough because at this early stage I had to like do this reverse stock swap thing, and and I had all these employees that were Swedish, and then we brought them here for an accelerator program. Went through that. Uh, pivoted and the company became basically showcasing where all your friends were traveling uh, through a new perspective. At first it was around connecting travelers, um, but then showing kind of where all your friends were traveling. And it's funny that the Facebook API change that happened when they, when they stopped using the graph would have killed the company anyway, but the company died. But from that, I learned how to build a team, raise venture capital, ship product, ship a mobile product. And I was doing, um, everything you know i was a design i was designing i was raising money i was doing it all so definitely had a chip on my shoulder and then was looking for uh a, something big and spent a lot of time taking coffees with um vcs and angel investors about some concepts i had and one of them was this lottery idea i saw that the new jersey lottery was the third state to privatize the lottery and i thought this is interesting like can this go online this would be a huge industry if we can make this happen uh, ended up um, meeting a family that was quite prolific in the lottery industry. And at the time, they couldn't invest, but they were like, we love that name. And at that time, I didn't even have the domain locked in yet. So I had to borrow some money from my mom, lock the domain in. We started building heads down. You helped raise some of the initial angel checks that we could, I could actually hire people. And we bro- built like a, a prototype. And then it turns out that family left the company that they were essentially uh, major executives at and said, we want to invest. And then um, went through a process where they ended up not investing. We were looking and uh, you introduced me to Barry Silver, actually, from Digital Currency Mm -hmm. Group, who actually ended up uh, helping raise some capital. And we finally were able to raise a seed level and it was a tough time, but we finally built the product, got it out, and we were going to launch in New York. And we we hired a lobbying firm here in New York who communicated with New York that, hey, listen, these guys are going to be launching. We are, we answered that RFI so they knew who we were. But they, I don't think they were thought how much it was going to catch fire. And um, I had always thought that if we were able to get this thing live, it was going to be huge. And we submitted to Apple. And I mean, we got rejected like 16 times. It was months of being rejected. Money was dwindling again. We didn't know what to do. Any big lesson learned about how to get through the Apple process? Um, What I learned was... You were getting rejected, if I remember, a lot of regulatory legal language around 
lotteries and gambling and whatnot. It was everything. They hadn't seen this model before. So explaining how this model works. So it was funny. One thing I, okay. One, one thing I would tell entrepreneurs is I was a scared for a while to get a legal opinion because I didn't want it to come out. You know, I didn't want to hear you're building something. You don't want to hear something that says, wow, what you're doing is legal. And finally we had to lean in and get it and just go through it. And we, we actually learned and there were things that we had to change in the product that said, oh, if we just tweak this or tweak this, actually, there were solutions that could be found. And so don't be scared of your own shadow in a sense. Like, you know, you have to mm-hmm. go out and just say, hey, let, let's get that legal opinion and make sure that we can stand on two feet and, and be proud of what we're building. Through Apple, I think what we learned is Apple is a hard nut to crack. And I bet every entrepreneur that you bring on, it's if I'll tell you this, if you can get a good communication channel there, keep it. Um, it's really tough. We've managed to, to, to do have some along the way, but you know, sometimes people leave and it's, it's, it's hard to reestablish them. But that was a nightmare going through that. And then because we didn't know, and we actually built non-natively at that point, our, our Android app was native, but it was weird. Android until this marks didn't allow for real money gaming inside the app store. So they just did it. And we just got approved for New York and we're live actually in Android uh, in the Google Play Store. So we're super excited with that. Where Apple Congrats. actually took a position. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. It's, it's huge. I mean, it's uh, 50% of the addressable market we haven't been able to advertise to, essentially. But with Apple, it was weird. They took a more liberal approach to gambling. Um, but remember, if you get rejected from Apple and you're a native app, you can't distribute that app. You're, you're done. So we actually built it using a, a hybrid approach. We're now fully native and we've been for quite some time. But at, we had to make a real decision that, okay, we're going to put in a wrapped app. And if it gets rejected, we can at least have a mobile web version. So through back and forth, back and forth, we finally, we are able to um, get it approved. So now we're just waiting on what day and making sure that everything's um, compliant. And we release it in the app store and we just get a little uptick, little uptick just from like kind of organic traffic and our payment processor. This is like days before we're trying to set up this big press release, shuts us down and they go, hey, what are you guys doing? And we like, we were very clear what we were doing. We, we've had multiple conversations. So we finally get them a day before we're about to launch and say, okay, we're going to let you keep going. And we see that what you're doing is legal. And then we tell New York, we're going to be launching the state and we let them aware. And they basically say, we're going to take a neutral position. And we ended up working with um, a great PR team that had really great local New York ties. And it was on a Sunday, I had to do an interview and he lined up an interview with the New York Post. And I, at the time I was dating a girl and there was like a birthday brunch we needed to be to. And during the, the brunch, I have to go outside and in the streets of Manhattan, have a finger in my ear and talking to this guy in the New York Post. And I think I'd blow the interview. I call back my PR guy. I'm like, hey, it's done. We're not going to get it. Go to bed that night to Sunday, wake up Monday morning. And we are on the front cover of the New York Post. It's like new app. That's amazing. New app uh, raises jackpot to you know three hundred million or something. And we were like, "Holy shit, this is crazy!" So I get to the office, and we already have Good Morning America, um, uh, Good Morning Today, or whatever the CBS show. All the shows calling us. All the local news waiting outside our office, and it just shot off like crazy, right? So we have this amazing moment that we, we we were you know that we had and we're about two three weeks into this thing and it's just skyrocketing and people are so excited about it and then all of a sudden it's a saturday and i get a call saying that our payments are cut off and so that same payment company ended up shutting down our payments 
And it turned out one of the credit card companies filed a complaint. And so we go on this basically six-month endeavor where we start to then introduce ACH within three months. But we had this pent-up demand. We just showed people, all these people want to play. It was so funny. We At that point, when people won credits, it was in their account. And I remember we were like a week or two into not being able to accept payments. And we were having a drink at a bar. And with one of my uh, co-founders, I was like, hey, people have credits in their account they can play with. They don't have to you know, do another purchase. Let's, let's just see if we turn it on, how quickly people will play. And we made all these bets, five minutes, 10 minutes. We turned it on within like four seconds. People were playing that had credits. So people had been trying to play, trying to play. <laughs> so again, we, we, it was this other like, okay, we, we know people want to play. So we ended right. up finding, we moved and got all this um, compliance done to get another payment provider. And we're able to start growing. But now we're running out of that seed capital. We need to do a series A. And right before I went out to the way I used to do my fundraising and, and, and you know, in the old days, the, the, the before times when you would actually have to do in-person meetings, uh, I would line up, you know, like 15 meetings over three days on Sand Hill Road or something like that in San Francisco, right? So I would just pack them in and just hustle, 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 go to as many as I could and really just like kind of kill myself when I was out on the West Coast. Um, and I'd done that. I'd set this whole thing up and I broke my ankle. I broke my ankle and the day before I had to um, get a, one of those little dollies that you put your knee on and went out, went out to the Valley, still did the meetings. And one of the people who led our series A still says, you know, because I came in when I was still hurt and still did it, like that was one of the reasons they invested. So we're, we're all excited. We get the series A investment. So now we have product. We've gotten through some tax, you know, some uh, payment issues and we've gotten some traction. We've gotten the Series A investment. We just get it closed in like less than 30 days after we get it closed. New York um, Gaming Commission comes in and says, hey, listen, we've taken a neutral position for as long. We either need to regulate this thing or we need to shut you down and you need to pause play right now. So we're like, oh, man, we just and thank God we had raised that Series A money because we would have been done. And so we ended up hiring the lawyer that actually fought here in New York for Airbnb and Uber. And she's a fantastic lawyer, and uh, we ended up working with her. Very expensive. (laughs) But we were able to get the New York Gaming Commission to give us one meeting. And so we had to go up to Schenectady, New York. We went up there, got on a train, and there was a very long table. There must have been 20-odd, 20-some people that I presented to. And at the time, I'm, I'm like 26, 27 or something, and I'm presenting to everyone. And I basically say, hey, guys, we, we now have enough traction to show you that like we can do this. We can help you sell these lottery tickets. And, and right now, it's very ambiguous if you can do it on your own. You may need legislation. But through changing the regulations and the model that we've established, we think we can do this. And it took us like three months of silence. And they came back and said, you know what? We want to do this. We want to create regulations. Well, we thought that was going to be a one-year process. That ended up being another three-year process of helping them create the regulations then they have to post the regulations and they have to vote on the regulations then they have to have comments then they have to take the comments in then they have to have another vote and now the regulations are done well now they have to create an application and now you have to apply for the application that you created or the regulations that you've provided input on and then you have to apply to it and then they have to go through you know a, a ton of work but we knew and we were lucky to have investors that wanted to play the long game and knew that if we could, the old Frank Sinatra song, right? If you can do New York and do it anywhere, 
Like if you can get business done here in New York, all the other lotteries look at you and, and we're like, wow, these guys were able to get through that. And during that time, we know we couldn't stop. We couldn't just wait for New York. So we started opening up other states, you know, all around the country and starting investing in technology and starting investing. And I think what people don't understand about what we do is we actually take physical paper tickets and we digitize them. And that's through proprietary technology that we built that is both software, but also hardware. We just filed our first intellectual property on robotics machines that actually help us convert these paper tickets. And um, if you go into one of our fulfillment centers today, it looks like an Amazon fulfillment center where there's robots helping humans that are automating and basically going through high-speed scanning process, printing processes, optical character recognition, machine learning technology that's letting us. And every time somebody orders a ticket, we're actually printing a physical ticket and, and processing that ticket in real time. And um, so like one of, one of the interesting areas that I always say is even if a competitor came in today with $100 million of marketing spend, they can't keep up operationally. And the only way we were able to do that I guess this is another entrepreneur. Let's just, it's like it's small iterations, right? It's you keep on learning and you keep on discovering. You keep on getting things better and better and better and better. And listen, there were a hundred things we could have tried to do, but staying focused on this just core mission has led us to a position where you know we're confident in what we're doing. Peter, it's an incredible story. And I think just to contextualize it for everyone who didn't read between the lines in all of this, most entrepreneurs fail when it's easy to raise money it's easy to get credit card payment processing done and you don't need government approval. Yeah. You had all three of them saying no from the beginning. We had a lot more than that saying no, but <laughs> you broke through all those barriers. How long since you started? It's eight years. How long till you were in market materially from the time of starting six years? Yeah. So we started years? the company. Yeah. We started the company in 2012. We got incorporated in 2013. I started in 2012. We went live in New York in 2015 but got turned off in 2016 and we just went back live in 2021 <laughs> right so, the, so we're talking years and years and years of endurance and stamina to get to where you are now i mean that's a hell of a moat if i've ever heard of one um i think there's more to the story right this was not just a hard journey as an entrepreneur it was hard for you personally big time right uh I know you went through the roller coaster. I mean, every, all the entrepreneurs I work with, I'm an entrepreneur. The roller coaster is real, right? We're all on it. There's no way off it until the show's done. No way off it. No. And to sit in limbo for that period of time, I'm sure was emotionally taxing. But I, I also know it's financially taxing. Do you want to talk about some of the highs and lows, what you yeah. went through personally? So, you know, on a personal level, not being able to pay myself for many, many, many years, that, that was just drooling. You know, it, it, the, that time when I went to raise a Series A, I actually went to take uh, an Uber or taxi back to my hotel. And I had to get my sister to send on, I think it was Cash App at the time, money to cover me. My sister's 10 years younger than me, right? right. I, was, I, was, I put out a lot of money on credit cards. It was really, and I don't recommend that, by the way. Um, it was really troublesome for me. Um, the roller coaster, I could say this. When I first started at Jackpocket, we started at a WeWork, and I, it's been interesting to go through that whole thing because you knew I was part of that early WeWork community. Mm -hmm. And I would, at night, 
at around 10 or 11, whoever was left, I was like, okay, these are the real guys that are really chugging along and trying to make things happen. And I would finally go to them. I'd be like, hey, man, how's your psychology doing? How are you feeling? First, they would be brash. But then I would kind of lean into that, man. You could talk to me. I'm going through it too, this roller coaster ride. And when you could, these people would open up to you, tell you how troubling it is because everyone feels really alone during this time. And even though I, I, I started the company by myself, so I was a, a single founder. Then we, I call it our founding team, our first you know, few f- founding members that we brought in. But when I envisioned the company, it was just me. And so a lot of this I had to endure myself. And I always say I'm like 90% transparent to the team. Meaning I try to tell them everything, but there's some things that I got to get beat up on that they don't need to know. And that still happens today. But the roller coaster ride is really interesting because I always say you can be in a shower, you'd be taking the shower in the morning. And within that shower, you can go through two highs and a low. Oh, this is the best idea. This is what am I? Then you'll hit a point when you're washing your hair and you're like, what am I doing? And then by the end, you're like, no, I'm going to go and kill this day. What? I've learned is the roller coaster is never going to go away and you should not think it's going to, but rather than it being this big, letting it ripple like this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think one frustrating thing, and it's, I think what it shows is real entrepreneurs, it's about hunger, is these highs, these quote unquote highs that you're supposed to feel, that time when the money's sent for a series round, the time when a state goes live, the time when an offer comes in, whatever it is, a deal gets signed. Everyone has this movie montage premise that like, you know, there's a celebration and everything. <laughs> I, I remember when we launched Texas, it was like, someone's like, hey, Texas is live. And everyone's like, okay, cool. And this is, that had been a state we'd been working on for such a long time. When you raise around and it just feels like that, it's so anticlimactic. And I mm-hmm. think that's because to be able to survive this game, you have to be hungry and already on to the next thing. So when, when those moments happen, you're like, shit, that should have happened already. Like, I've been waiting on that forever. And you know, everything takes longer. So that's another entrepreneur lesson, right? Is like, it, everything takes longer than expected. Um, but I think that keeps you hungry because if you were satisfied with that financing, again, people talk about financing like it's a success story. As you know, it is basically just, hey, you now have materials to work with, still build the house. Like, you like, build the business. You just have now runway to do so. Um, but grueling for me, you know, I, I love, I, I love talking to founders when I do get the chance to, because it's still, it's still tough, man. It's still, it's still something that's beats you up and it's tough to be the person that has to always be making decisions, right? You have to always be there. You have to be on, you can't step away. Exhausting. It's exhausting. So what do I say? When I said before, I think on the early part, I like those guys that stay till 10, 11. But as you start to mature, you need a work-life balance. It's really hard for me to still step away for a full day or even you know some time. But I think recharging the batteries is the best thing ever. And I think physical activity is the best. And being in nature is the best thing for that. So I think it's really important to maintain some type of you know normal lifestyle um, alongside building something. Um, it could really help recharge the batteries in, in, in a way that I don't think anything else can. But uh, I, I, this, this is going to sound bad. I, I don't think a lot of people are cut out for entrepreneurship, you know? Um, and, and that may sound like an ass thing to say, but a lot of people will say, hey, you know, especially people that I knew, you know, in high school or whatever, hey, wh- can you give me some advice? I'm trying to, my advice is actually don't do it. 
And I know that's, that's, that's brutal, but don't, don't even get started. Don't it's, you're a great person. You're just not, you have to be cut out for this. You have to really be cut out to get dragged through the dirt a lot and take a lot of beatings. So I don't know. Pete, you've got one of my favorite tenacity stories. Uh, the fundraise you did at Y Combinator, that was a prior company, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was, can you tell that story real quick? Cause I I think it'll give, when you're talking about the type of person, I I think this story exemplifies why you are that person uh, as much as anything. This this is a good one. So, you know, I bet a bunch of people listening have tried to apply to these accelerators and you get, you know, rejected a million times and super frustrating. But at this time, Y Combinator, you know, was the hottest thing. And we didn't get in. And I knew that this time they took, it was the first time they brought in the class. Remember they, they used to have really kind of intimate classes. Then they brought in the class. And I think that year for demo day, they were making everyone have like a two or three minute pitch. And so I wasn't in the class, but I was like, wait a second, demo day is happening. And they're having it at some venue in, I think it was Mountain View or Men, Menlo Park or Palo Alto somewhere there. And I was like, wait a second. I can't get into the building. I'm not going to be able to present there. But guess who's going to be outside the building? Everyone that's driving to this venue is a high caliber investor, venture capitalist. Um, and I said, wait a minute, I have everyone in this moment. So I created fake parking tickets for the city. I believe it was Mountain View. And I went and created <laughs> these parking tickets and I put them on everyone's car. And they look pretty authentic because I'm a designer. So I was able to you know, modify one. And it said, you are in violation of making a bad business decision based upon a two-minute pitch. If you really want to, my name is Pete and we're triple and, and we're innovating the travel space and this is how you can reach out to me. And so what happened was I put them on all the cars and obviously you could really cherry pick the nice cars in this premise, right? right. So I do, I put them all and I take a picture, I posted it on Instagram and then I, I posted it on Hacker News. And it became the number one story on Hacker News while Y Combinator's demo day was going on. <laughs> and then like TechCrunch and The Next Web and VentureBeat, they all picked up the story. And I remember one of the headlines was like, the best pitch at YC demo day actually happened uh, in the parking lot. And so it was amazing that I was able to get all this attention. And from that, I got multiple venture meetings and people that just loved the way that I approach it, I also got some very nasty emails from YC. And they actually, I don't know if this has ever been publicly known, but they actually undemocratically took down the post at some point because it was the number one post uh, on Hacker News. So right, you hacked Hacker their, News. Yeah. So that was definitely uh, an, an, an interesting story. Pete, you've been cranking on this and have had different experiences and frankly, most entrepreneurs who play in this game What's one thing you've learned, even if it's a little bit esoteric, that other entrepreneurs can learn from? Yeah. So, you know, looking back, I think we did a lot of things the right way. And I give ourselves a lot of credit to that. And it's helped us build confidence. I think it took a lot longer than we expected. But one thing that I definitely learned, and whether it's, you know, within a regulated space or not, there are going to be incumbents. And you want to show them that you're trying to innovate the space, you don't want to be too cocky. And sometimes being too cocky and arrogant can maybe um, kind of, you know, you, have you kick yourself. And 
with us, a little kind of story that happened was when we were launching in New York, we knew that if we got a bunch of attention, that the app wouldn't be available in other states, but we'd probably get picked up by some national media. Um, and it did. So we had Good Morning America, CBS This Morning. And so what happened was all these people would be downloading in states they couldn't play. So we had to utilize um, and basically try to leverage that situation because we they couldn't play. So what else could they do on the app? So we use that as an opportunity to promote ourselves. And we thought it would be funny, cute, and we were a little arrogant that said, hey, Jackpot is not available in your state. Would you like to let your state lottery director know? And this actually caused us to have a little bit of a bad reputation when we first got started. And I, I wish we wouldn't have done this because it worked really well. Um, basically, within the first 48 hours, I think over 50,000 emails were sent to state lottery directors. So many emails being sent that we actually caused a bunch of the state lottery email servers to crash. People got really upset at us because for weeks, people were just emailing all these lottery directors and with their personal email addresses. And so we thought it would be a way to raise attention and show demand. It kind of backfired. So I would, you know, you don't want to swim upstream in a, in a industry that you want to be part of. Um, so that was something that I learned that maturity uh, definitely kind of caused me to look back and be like, hey, I would definitely do that differently. And I think there's probably a bunch of stories like that that can go in, in any industry, which is, you know, you have to be a little bit respectful of some people that came before you too. I know you want to do something that's quote unquote disruptive. Again, right. we don't use that term inside a highly regulated industry, but like, you know, there, there's incumbents there and, and um, reputation matters. And those, those players you're trying to disrupt often end up buying you. Like it, it, totally. it's, it's counterintuitive, but you want to, you know, it, it's this weird dynamic where the people you're competing with, with most in life, whether it's sports, business, anything, those are also the people you almost always have the most in common with. Totally. Which is this total well, and, conundrum. Exactly. And, and especially in, in tech where like the incumbents are being displaced all the time. It's like they, they just displaced their incumbent not too long ago too, right? right. So they were in your, your booth just you. a decade before. Yeah. So, so it's just be respectful, I guess. You know, you want to listen, it's a game out there and you want to be, you want to be aggressive. You want to be smart, but just be respectful. I totally agree. Hey, Pete, uh, you've been on this journey for a long time. And it's been hard fought. And I think it's very clear for anyone paying attention that this is going to be a hugely successful outcome. You're changing the way a, a layer of society functions. Um, you're servicing a lot of people. You're integrated with a lot of states. Your moat's enormous. I assume this is going to have a very big financial outcome. I know you came from humble beginnings. Your dad worked for the MTA. I think he was an iron worker. Something on the engineering side. Uh, what does this mean for you and your family? Yeah. When you look yeah, at I, the path you're on, I know it hasn't happened yet, but you got to be remiss. You look crazy not to have holy shit moments as you realize where you're at. What does this totally, mean for you? Totally. And, and listen, I, I always knock on wood because, you know, we're still pushing that day hasn't come yet, but we're, we're charging towards it. And uh, I think anyone that also says, you know, they don't want to have a big financial return. Is 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 lying publicly, right? It's it's obviously one of the reasons why you endure for this long is the hope for that. And, and you're right, my my dad. I was born in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and uh, my dad and my mom met. My dad uh, owned a an after hours bar, um, but his father and 
my dad's grandfather all came from the MTA. Um, and you know, he had very humble beginnings. He, he never even had a bedroom, um, growing up. He never could play organized sports. Um, and so my dad wanted to make a better life for us. Now, again, my mom being from Greenpoint, my dad being from Williamsburg, they move us out to New Jersey to make a better life for us, not knowing what was about to happen to those neighborhoods. So now they're kicking mm. themselves in the ass saying, oh man, if we only bought property mm. or didn't try to do the right thing for our kids, where a bunch of their friends didn't, they didn't put a dollar into their place and they're selling them for millions of dollars. But my parents wanted to do something better for their children. And my dad wanted to get involved in all this, you know, recreational sports stuff. So he couldn't play as a kid. So we wanted to be my head coach for baseball and basketball and football and all this. And so my dad would commute about an hour and 15, hour and a half each way into the city and back. And he did that for like 30 years. And, you know, the funny story, like I say, is during that time, now he became a New York player and, um, and now he became a New Jersey lottery player. And people, people think about this founder story. You know, I think some people start to fabricate some stuff around it. My family was so involved with the lottery. It was, I mean, a weekly joke about my dad. And my dad came from, obviously, my grandmother. My grandmother was known as the lottery queen in Brooklyn, and she passed away this year. And it's a little morbid, right. but I, no, it's, it's fine. Uh, it was a little sudden, but um, at her wake in Greenpoint, uh, people actually brought lottery tickets and put it in her casket. I mean, this is no joke. Like this was, this was my, my grandma was a, a savant in terms of bingo. She could look at like 15 cards and memorize the cards and go play. And she was always found in the bingo halls. So, you know, obviously her kids and my dad being one of those, we're always players in the space. And we joked about my dad in this all the time. And little, I had no idea I would ever be in the lottery space. And uh, lo and behold, it, he was the inspiration for it all. And so when we did our first TV commercial, I actually asked, had my dad. And so it's me and my dad on the TV commercial. And I, it's, it's authentic because it's really my dad. Big Pete, we call him. And we brought my dad to one of the lottery conferences. And it was the first time that he kind of saw how big this was, what we were doing. You know, it was, it was like someone that would play the lottery, but never saw behind the curtain of how the lottery industry works. And he was so proud. And, you know, it's it's awesome that I've had a super supportive family throughout all this. I mean, I, I couldn't have asked for more. And, you know, my mother's always been super supportive of my dad and, and my brothers and sisters. And, you know, I... I hopefully can have a life-changing moment that I can help change their lives as well. And, and it, it was funny. I, due to some financial circumstances, my mom always wanted a, a Louis Vuitton bag. That was one thing she always said, if you make it, you can get a Louis Vuitton bag. And, um, due to a deal that happened, we were able to, to, I was, you know, able to, to get her that. And I gave it to her on her 60th birthday this year. And she was crying awesome. and it's just a small thing. Right. But like, for me, I'd heard that for the last seven years, eight years of my life since starting the company. One day, you know, you'll get me that Louis Vuitton bag. And, um, you know, that's what you're in it for. And, th and that's actually a moment you can step back and say, wow, I've, I've, I've actually come full circle. So, you know, I'll end with this though. You know, what is success? And it was funny. We had uh, our auditing company. And they every year when you get your financials audited, and we need to, most startups probably don't but since we're regulated we need to and it's a big one of the big four and they come in and then there's a segment where they have to go through and they kind of pull you aside and they have everyone in a room and they go through some hard questions you know um and the woman the partner there goes uh, just curious Peter, you know what do you think about success how do you how do you qualify success i said 
Well, you see that woman out there on the phone? She's she's our first customer service hire. I want her, when we exit this thing, to be able to buy a house in cash. That for me would be a success. And she goes, wow. Beautiful. She's like, I've asked this a million times and I've never heard someone you know, point to somebody else for success. But really, I think that's why entrepreneurs shifted so fun is because everyone should be working together in the same boat to help lift everyone else up and, and change everyone's life. So hopefully we'll have that outcome and hopefully that uh, customer service person will be able to get that house. And um, you know, I see it on the horizon, whether it's going to happen tomorrow or two years from now, who knows, but I think we're moving in the right direction and um, I'm, I'm glad I stuck with it. And thanks for all your support along the way too. Absolutely. Pete, you have a lot to be proud about. Fantastic. Thanks, uh, and beautiful story with the family. We wish you the best of luck. We'll be obviously staying glued to all the updates. Um, thank you for being on today. Thanks, man, for having me. Great to talk to you. Well, as I mentioned in the beginning, that's a hell of a founder story. I hope you found it entertaining and learned something. Jackpocket is a company to keep an eye on. If you liked what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for innovation with Mark Peter Davis.